Hello, my fine friends. Thank you for choosing my podcast to listen to. We're powered by ACAS Plus. You can join uh, ACAS Plus if you want to get lots of bonuses. Google Rahalastapa and ACAS Plus and you'll get right there. There's lots of fun stuff to get. Um, Rahalastapa tour is nearly over. 21st of March, I'm at Bedford Corn Exchange. I'm talking to Olaf Falafel, who's a very funny children's author and stand-up comedian, and Al Murray, the pub landlord and historian man. And a friend of mine, uh, it should be fantastic, who went to Bedford, went to school in Bedford. It should be amazing. There's plenty of tickets left for that one. Uh, Glasgow on the 27th and Hull on the 28th. They're both sold out, but do keep checking the sites for returns. And uh, occasionally we put some comps back on sale, so there may be a chance to buy tickets. The main thing, though, is that I am going to be on tour doing stand-up, and I would love you to come. Uh, it's uh, from... It starts officially in May, but so uh, there's a few tryouts in April and March. So I'm at the Bill Murray. I'm at um, various places, Luton Hat Factory and uh, the Berry Hedge End. I don't even know where that is before going into a big tour where I'm going all over the place. It's selling in various degrees. Glasgow sold out. They've added an extra date. Uh, Chorley sold out, joined the waiting list. Uh, but a lot of the others have plenty of tickets. So... Do go and come to see that. RichardHerring.com slash ballback slash tour for all those tour dates. RichardHerring.com slash Rahalastapa for the remaining Rahalastapa dates. And uh, yeah, and then I'm going to take a little break from doing Rahalastapas. It'll be nice. We've got loads in the bank. Uh, so I hope you're enjoying them. I think there's some very high quality ones from this tour. Uh, so do keep listening. Do keep telling your friends. RichardHerring.com for all your Richard Herring needs. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy another Rahalastapa. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Please welcome a man who's never had a gargoyle fall on him yet, but there's still time. It's Richard Herring. Hello, my fan friends. Yeah, about you're almost equal to last week's audience. Almost exactly the same. Welcome to Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast. I was uh, talking to Paul Chuckle from off the Chuckle Brothers the other day. Uh, he calls it Rahal Leicester Post. I don't know if that's gonna. I don't know if that's going to catch on. Uh, let me thank the people who have uh, helped us live. We're live streaming. Hello, live stream people. Hope you're enjoying the show. Um, you can still buy those live streams if you go to gfsboxoffice.com. Uh, uh, it's the only way to watch the videos uh, if you want to see what's going on. Uh, the people who we have to thank this week are Hugh Lind Evans. Uh, he says he would like whatever Richard would like to say for continuity, happy for one of his glorious Welsh accents to be used in full effect. Okay, Hugh... 
It's good to see you. Hello. Oh, boy. Boyo. You can laugh in London. That's how they talk in Wales. So it's very patronising. Very patronising to our Welsh listeners. Sorry that they laughed at you, Welsh listeners. Uh, Dink Taylor is... Uh, was another Dink? Dink Taylor. Fucking hell. <laughs> what the terrible fans I've got. It says, My name appears twice in error during the Kickstarter credits on the Ofrig on 50 DVD. So could he say my name twice or else it will play ha- havoc on my OCD? Cheers. Uh, and No. Uh, <laughs> Fraser, I'd like to thank Fraser as well. He's got nothing to say, not even his surname. Uh, and I'd like to thank Dink Taylor as well for... Uh, <laughs> he also gave some money. Uh, look, if you, uh, if you uh, are so inclined here in the studio, uh, we have uh, uh, copies of a programme sponsored by Bulb Energy, uh, which are of Rahalastapa. Uh, pub. It's what broke them. It's what broke them. Uh, cost a lot to produce that program uh, and uh, we make a collection for scope after the show there's but there's uh, buckets on the at the bar if you would like to give a donation don't feel you have to but take a program anyway uh, but uh, all the money will go to scope which is a fantastic charity uh, I don't, what, what I've been up to this week um, I went to see the Frozen musical uh, yesterday a bit childish I thought uh, a bit childish just watch the film I would say it cost uh, it was seven people went it cost nearly a thousand pounds I'd go to a massage parlour and just get wanked off a lot <laughs> instead. Probably not with your kids, though. Don't take your kids. Uh, my kids, I've been, I've been reading at night time. I've been reading, as I mentioned uh, the other week, I've been reading a book about in- collect- looking after insects with my daughter. It's huge. I'm on to moths and butterflies, which I talked about with uh, Jos Norris. Uh, and um, uh, he told me that uh, caterpillars melt in the chrysalis and then are reformed but have the memories... The butterfly will have the memories of the caterpillar. I don't know how they test that, but that's what he claimed. Uh, I haven't found that in the book, but I've found that a lot of moths and butterflies, uh, when they emerge, don't have working mouths and are thus unable to feed and just live a week or two and die, presumably of starvation. What kind of a psychotic god would create? <laughs> that's a terrible... You just put a mouth on there, let them live for a little bit. I mean, they're going to probably get their wings pulled off by a child or eaten by a bird, but give them a chance to live. They're so beautiful. Why do that? You psychotic God. I don't pretend you don't listen to the podcast, God. I know you listen <laughs> obsessively and write re- remarks on the YouTube videos. I know that's you. Uh, and my son continues to his attempts to be a comedian. Um, uh, I, 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 he, I, he sometimes uh, leave school early and go swimming and then I take him to pick up uh, his sister and he's wearing like a unicorn onesie, right? Which is a bold thing to wear at, at school uh, in itself. And as we are walking through the playground after picking up his sister, uh, he then t- he started unzipping the unicorn onesie. Don't do that, Ernie. And then he, he pulled down his unicorn onesie. So he's walking with a unicorn onesie around his ankles in just his pants. Uh, everyone was laughing at him. He was getting good laughs. The kids, like, the f- five and six years old, and going, who is that kid? They were kind of quite impressed. They were laughing, but they were quite impressed with his audacity. Uh, and, uh, and I said, why did you do that? And he said, I just want to be funny like you. Uh, and um, now, look, he hasn't seen any of my stuff, right? So he doesn't know what, what kind of sophisticated comedy I do. He got lucky. That is the kind of stuff I would do. There's no way he could know that. Old prick. <laughs> so he'll be a guest in ten years' time, probably. Uh, and uh, anything else I've got to tell you? No, no that's, that'll do. That'll do. Thank you very much to everyone who supported the Kickstarter. Thank you for everyone who continues to support the show. Do come and see the shows if you can. Yeah, thank you to the lovely people who've turned up tonight. And you've done the right thing. I mean, 
Last week we had Paul Chuckle on. I mean, who could follow Paul Chuckle? That's the question. I thought long and hard. This is the greatest double bill that you have ever seen anywhere. I was hoping they would meet in the dressing room and sort of uh, form a new Chuckle Brothers together. Um, and my next guest is probably best known for writing an article on the iconography of the Armamium on the Ezra page of the Codex Amiatinus. That's why we're all here tonight. Can't even say it. Will you please welcome the amazing Dr. Nina Ramirez, ladies and gentlemen. Here she is from the iconography. Hello. Of the uh, armarium. Do you know, it's one of my big achievements. Yeah, it is. So it? you failed in your uh, <laughs> introduction there to, to list one of my minor achievements. I, I know. <laughs> I'm not sure it's what you're best known for. But I know you, you know, you're, you're multi-talented and, have, and study many. So you started off studying English literature and then have done... History of art. Yeah, well, we, and can, we can have history. the same conversation about you because um, you started off studying history. And yeah. Now look at the now, heady heights. Amazing. Of stand up. Yeah, I was laughing uh, around the side there listening to you. I'm your... glad someone was. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to you describing your, your son because bizarrely, my daughter has decided the only thing she wants to do in life is be a stand up comedian. Wow. Which is also interesting because it is my secret. Unfulfilled. Wow. Achieve, yeah. Never too late. It's never no, well, late. I think it is. <laughs> it is. And I'll tell you why I think it is. Um, I <laughs> was doing my PhD in York and I, <laughs> I was having a really hard time. It's quite a lonely and weird thing to do to spend four years writing a, a thing where you've got nobody else cares about it at all. And you're the only person that cares. And once in a blue moon, I'd go and sit in a room with an actual human. And I remember going in and my, my supervisor said to me, So, Nina, you know, you're writing this thesis. It's really fantastic. Uh, it's quite obscure. I'm not sure it's going to lead to work instantly. Um, <laughs> if work doesn't happen, what are you going to do? And I, I was all teary and I was like, I don't know. But I think my lifelong dream was always to be a stand-up comedian. She looked at me and she went, you're not funny. <laughs> and I was like, oh. <laughs> Double bubble. So, so the fact my daughter wants to kind of do it, I'm like 100% behind it. You have to deal just... with that if you are a stand-up comedian. You have to deal with people telling you you're not, <laughs> you're funny. not it, funny. It doesn't ever end. So <laughs> you just have to, you have to ignore them the and carry on. <laughs> uh, as an historian, how is it uh, now that history is about to end? Are you happy about that? Um, it's finished. It's a good it's, time. It's, over. it's a good time to be a historian. Yeah. I, I was just saying this to the taxi driver today. I was like, you know, it's... I, I have just, I must say, and I was saying, I know this is a funny podcast, and I will be funny, but I have just come from quite a serious event, which was, uh, I'm Polish, and I was with uh, kind of cultural representatives of um, Lithuania and Estonia and Czechoslovakia and Poland at an event where um, we had Ukrainian colleagues talking about what their families are going through. And I've had a little cry this evening. It's been a really hard thing to sit through. So... On the one hand, I am very. I have family across the border, and they are getting regular hourly updates from my family saying who's made it across, who hasn't, um, and it's very real and it's very personal. And then there's the historian in me that always thinks back hundreds of years and forwards hundreds of years and tries to see the outcomes of things. And what I'm really heartened by is the absolute outflowing of kindness that I'm seeing. And what I really hope this is showing is people have a voice now and people don't want more. 
Mm-hmm. And that is my takeaway message. And I, every time I turn on the TV, I'm, I'm seeing the worst of humanity and then I'm seeing the best of humanity. So just, I'm, we're here to have a lovely evening out, but <laughs> things are happening and they are big and they are uh, you know, important things. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, we can look back at history and it, it won't make us feel very confident <laughs> about learning. Yeah, but things are. can change. I mean, it's sort of weird that, well, you know, you always think that about... How do people? How do the leaders manage to persuade the people, people to, to go and do this awful thing for them that they're not putting them, usually not putting themselves at risk? Themselves? Well, that's what I think is the shifting point, actually, yeah. Richard, because I think that um, you could do that before the digital revolution. You could absolutely do propaganda, and it would work. And that's yeah. an awful lot of what I work on is you know pro- propaganda of regimes. But what's happened with social media is that. I actually feel, so, I know, maybe not a popular opinion, but I feel sorry for the Russian people. And they're going to be squeezed and things are going to be awful. And what we're seeing is that they're protesting too. They're mm. having a really hard time. And having an open platform where the, you know, there still are lines of communication open, I'm getting regular updates from, from all over the world with people telling me what's happening. So maybe that's the key change. Maybe that's the difference. Yeah, my worry, my, well, my, you know, it's a light-hearted podcast. I'm just yeah, going to ruin, I'm just ruin the rest of your lives for you. My <laughs> feeling is, like, you know, people always said nuclear weapons were a deterrent, but this is showing that they aren't, that so people are prepared to possibly use them tactically. But also, if someone who's mental is in charge of a country, which has happened about 80% of the time in the last five years, <laughs> is in a war that they're losing, mm. well, you know, Donald Trump's losing a world war, He's not going to go, I give up, is he? Oh, or or Putin. I should use that. No, exactly. That was the scary kind of um, upscaling of it, wasn't it? Yeah. And um, I don't know. We are. This will go out in a few weeks. Yeah. And the world may be A nuclear wasteland. Again. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So it's going to really sorry affect my... I'm my speaking my, to you in bunkers. Yeah, it'll fuck up my downloads. Or maybe, <laughs> you know, if everyone's underground, <laughs> what are we going to do? Let's listen to some to podcasts. <laughs> Let's hear what the people of three weeks ago thought was going to happen. Ah, <laughs> Listen to idiot. that stupid historian, their <laughs> optimism, yeah. But, you know, it would be nice for history to be completed, is what I'm saying. And then it's nothing else to learn, is it? There's no new stuff. You know, it's, it's then we go, history, this is it. We've got, probably got to find out a bit more about stuff that you're interested on, in from you, a long time ago. You really think you're a historian? Come on. <laughs> I mean, the, the, what is so exciting about working on the past at the moment is that the floodgates have opened, that it's not just... I mean, tonight I hope you're admiring my beautiful dress, which has an Anne Boleyn neckline. Uh, and I did my in to history. That's what I was, was thinking. That's the, I, was, I was enjoying the Anne Boleyn neckline. First thing you were thinking, the Anne Boleyn neckline. Look at that Anne Boleyn um, neckline. My first isn't in- an Anne Boleyn neckline someone with no head, though, isn't that... <laughs> That's, yeah, that's, that's a few weeks' time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I got in through trying to find, I suppose, the only women that we were ever taught about at school that were interesting, which was Henry VIII's wives. Yeah. And I remember being fascinated by them and then going back and back and finding all these other fascinating cultures and, and contexts. And now what is so brilliant is the lines have been a bit redrawn. We're ne- not necessarily bothered about military leaders or warriors or kings or queens although they still take up an awful lot of our brain space we're looking for everyone else and that is amazing and so now it's more exciting than ever to be studying it because but how do you find so is this what your your new book which is not yet out so i haven't yet read it till called femina femina yes uh is this about women in 
yeah. the Anglo-Saxon. So, well, but how do you find out about about because like Anglo-Saxon and medieval times, it's very hard to find out anything apart from you know so saints and kings. Says. So everybody says. So how have you found out? Well, that? because there's been enormous developments. So just digitizing things, getting archives online. How many of you in here have looked up your your genealogy or done any sort of family history somebody's yeah there's a couple few hands going up and we can do it in a way we couldn't do it before um we've got dna analysis we've got archaeology that doesn't even you don't even need to pick up a trowel you can go up in a spaceship and satellite and look down and find archaeological sites so the technological developments are so huge and yet our way of writing them up, our historical kind of narrative, hasn't caught up. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to say, you know, we've, we've actually discovered so much. We've discovered cities that we didn't know about. We've discovered, you know, individual bones that lead us back to one woman that lived in Sweden in this particular period. And so um, it's just a, a redrawing of the frame. It's saying, I'm not just looking at women. I'm looking at history in a different way. Yeah. But I'm putting the frame around the women to find everybody else yeah so that's the that's the sort of idea really and who have you found have, oh. you, found, have you found actual is it like actual people or just yeah i have found actual people okay. actual humans who's the who's the best one <laughs> oh, you found the best well the best <laughs> the best actually has never been completely lost she has kind of been uh treasured particularly in germany where she was from so she is leonardo da vinci pumped up a couple of centuries before Leonardo da Vinci. Her name is Hildegard of Bingham. Has anyone heard of Hildegard of Bingham? Nope. Please go back and read about Hildegard of Bingham. Oh, was that a yes? Yeah. She is awesome, isn't she? Look, you see here. You can't agrees. just say yes. You He's have agreeing. to tell me all about her now. Yeah. <laughs> no clues. I want a mini You're going to come up here and tell us. <laughs> delivered. <laughs> no, Hildegard, Hildegard's incredible. So yeah. um, she, she didn't do much up until about the age of... 40, which is giving me great hope. Uh, and she sort of was in a monastery and she was minding her own business, learning everything she could learn. And then it was a bit like now. There was this cataclysmic environment where the church was falling apart, where politicians were destroying each other and everyone was at war. And she became this, this person known as the Sybil of the Rhine, which is such a cool name, Sybil <laughs> of the Rhine. And, and she grew into this polymath that could do anything. So she wrote music that's unlike any other music of the time she was an artist so the front cover of the book is an image she drew of a female's genitalia Mm -hmm. which is a thousand years old with all the spots marked as well just for kind of handy (laughs) guidance (laughs) are they still the same place they're in the same place it's funny we haven't evolved (laughs) to the point where they've moved Um, and then she was a scientist. She wrote natural history tracts, and and she just extraordinary. And she lived to the age of eighty, and because of that, she had this like forty years of output. And and you know, she lived a thousand years ago. And you kind of find her, and you go, "Wow, women have been awesome forever." And we, you know, yeah. maybe we should redraw our understanding of that. Yeah, it, we know it, uh, the the medieval period and Anglo-Saxon periods, which are of particular interest to you, I think are the ones that I'm the weakest on. I have been trying to catch up over the last year or two. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, that, because it's, you, you did a book about the, the, the lives of the, the saints and the, their, their true lives, yeah. but they're, they're sort of the only Anglo-Saxon lives we've got really good ideas about. right? The, the, cause texts, texts are a pain yeah. when you get into that period, but archaeology is brilliant. Right. So you put it all together. You're like a detective. You're kind of piecing bits together. So... 
um, I use all the disciplines, you know. I'm kind of like a kid in a sweet shop going, well, I'll use a bit of DNA analysis and a little bit of art history and mix in a bit of literature. And um, only that way... I mean, it would be the same as trying to tell the story of what's happening now from just the accounts that are written up in chronicles and histories. To understand how the world we live in, you need to make it sensory. You need to fill it with all the things we fill our lives with. We yeah. fill our lives with music and art and visuals. And, and so how would you look at the past any differently? Why would you go in from just one angle? Sure. You know? But that's the, you know, that was, those were, I mean, it's weird that only, you know, religious people would document. And I suppose yeah, yeah. partly it survived because ch- churches sometimes survived uh, <laughs> often didn't but you know so that they were the only people writing stuff down yeah but so it was the anglo-saxon time it, it, there obviously was a sort of when the romans left the britain there was a period of at least disquiet and and economic problems yeah but w- w- was it as bad as yeah uh, it was pretty bad yeah <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of you know what we could be moving towards it was pretty apocalyptic yeah i think um so I went on holiday over half term with my kids to... Uh, well, I won't tell you the secret because it's my secret hotel that's so awesome that no one else can go to. But it's a really, really amazing family place um, just over the Seven Bridge. And it's right near to this town called Carleon. I know I'm saying that wrong. Carleon? Carleon. Yeah, You're just, very good at Welsh. I'm very good at Carleon. 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 How do you say it, yeah. Yeah, OK, good. Thank you for that. Um, I had never heard of it as a historian working in this place. It's this incredible... It's the most Western fortress that the Romans built, right? And it's in... You can go and you can see the actual baths that they swam in. And and, and it's just this, this idea that there was this sort of industrial-sized um, machine of the Roman Empire just rolling out its ikea flat pack this is rome (laughs) version right the way up to the edges of wales um but i found that really interesting because it kind of disappears in the fourth century and you just think yeah that is cataclysmic that is change on a on a huge level how do we measure the impacts of disasters how do we measure the impacts of change Uh, language you know destruction to the landscape destruction to art and architecture they are sort of indicators um, and, and often that's the most, the saddest part of my job is when I can see that, when I can actually see when, when civilizations, groups of people have been wiped out. I mean, mm. it's horrible. Yeah. I stood on a shoreline in Crete. I was doing this thing on the Palace of Knossos and uh, this brilliant, charismatic Canadian archaeologist took me down onto the beach and he went, look behind you. Um, and, he, and I said, well, you know, this is just, why are you digging here? There's nothing here. He said, look, and there's this ridge, which you never would have thought anything about when you walk along beaches. And he, he started pick, picking at it with his fingertips and he was pulling out Minoan pottery that was, you know, 4,000 years old. He said, that's Minoan. And, and everything, the whole sediment in this bank of sand yeah. was Minoan archaeology. And what had happened was there'd been a tsunami that hit the island wow. around the year 1400 and smashed up all of the towns on that side of Crete and then washed all the debris down to this beach. And it was just there. Yeah. And I was just standing there going, wow, I'm on the site of a disaster. But my God, look, it's <laughs> you know, like 4,000-year-old pottery here. It was, it was weird. Yeah. So, so, yeah, being a historian is a weird thing, really, because you're constantly looking forward and seeing the potential for humanity to do things differently, but you're also constantly looking backwards and seeing, 
you know, the things that have hurt us. Yeah, and those us. are the things that leave the most... The thing where things are destroyed, or, you know, like, I mean, Pompeii's an obvious example where something yeah. t- to cataclysmically horrible, horrible has happened. That's where you get your best... So it gives you an almost false idea because you don't get much from the... You don't get much of the good times, but you get lots of the bad times. <laughs> lots of the bad times. So Although we, I do like Pompeii. I, yeah. When I was there with my kids, I said, um, it's a bit like Blackpool, you know? <laughs> if you wanted to kind of go to Roman Blackpool, <laughs> it was a good time town. It was a seaside resort. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, yeah, again, it's, it's the tragedy mixed with the, 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 the fact it's preserved. The fact yeah. that they've left a mark on time. Which is a you know, hard thing to do. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I'm getting very heavy. Very. It's heavy. all right. It's what. That's why we're here. You know. It's just. Yeah. Someone had to follow Paul Chuckles, and I thought <laughs> the best way to do that well, was about you know, the destruction. Going of... about death and destruction. <laughs> that's the way but, to you know, that, annihilate a chuckle. This brand. is what history is. Well, let's quickly talk. This is this is well, sort of. There's some destruction in this, but this a is lot this of is uh, a, a lovely book. This is uh, that's just come out called Goddess. It's about fifty. I wish all history books were like this. I know, it's I, so pretty. I, I guess, A, it's beautiful, and B, it's just two pages on each subject <laughs> that's, that summarise it very nicely. I'm guessing it's for young people. It is, it is, But it is. I love it. But my God, the amount of work I put into that. Yeah, I can my tell. My God. So I, I remember getting this email that said, um, oh, Nina, you know, the British Museum are going to be putting on this exhibition about goddesses. It's the first one of its kind, international approach. It's going to be amazing. And we want to do a book for children. Will you write it? And I, I know it's going to be called 50 Goddesses from Around the World. I was like, yeah, you know, I'll look them up on Wikipedia. It'll be fine. <laughs> Take me a bit of time. Two pages each. Anyway, after I'd written the first few, I realised I was working with a team of about 60 curators who are the international experts on every single aspect of every single thing I've said. So they could, so then I realised, oh my God, I've got to research everything. So I suddenly had to research all world religions yeah. <laughs> from all cultures <laughs> across all of time and write about each of them. So I crammed, luckily, um, well, I shouldn't say luckily, there was a kind of opportunity to stay at home and write a lot oh, called yes. a pandemic, um, which meant that I did get my head in the game and read a lot. But it opened my world, my, you know, it, it opened my mind up to the world in a way I've never really done. You studied history. And, I do, you know, I have. When you do English history, it's so small, it's yeah. so narrow. And then I'm reading about, you know, Hindu goddesses that go back thousands of years and about Aztec um, divinities and African spirits. And, and it's just, it was the most eye-opening thing I've done. I think it's when you start looking at how many gods there have been throughout history. Mm. And actually, when you start studying it as well, it's kind of, I'm, I'm just listening to Francesca Stavropoulou's yeah. book about God and anatomy. And what I didn't really, I, you know, I've, I think I've studied the Bible, maybe it's the New Testament more, but I've, you know, I've, I've read a lot about biblical uh, studies and I didn't realise that our God, Yahweh, you know him? You know him? Uh, he has a dad. <laughs> yeah. And he's got seven, 69 brothers. <laughs> And so I hadn't, you know, I didn't know, any, I didn't know, I had never heard of that. So El or Ael is this, where Israel and the, is in all of the names of everything. He was the, he's the God's dad. Yeah. Uh, and he was the main God uh, for a bit. And then uh, Yahweh came in and sort of knocked him off his perch. Not it, it just that that tribe was, yeah. that had Yahweh came a bit bigger and successful and so that God became successful. So it's kind of, it's sort of crazy that people are, you know, that are religious 
don't go back and go, well, should I go back right to the beginning oh, and find okay. out, <laughs> find oh out where God. this came from? I mean, I, I, do a, I do a session with my students where I, I, I try... Because, you know, if you're going to look at medieval stuff, you've kind of got to understand where Christianity come from. Yeah. To understand where Christianity's come from, you've got to look at your know, earlier religions. And I, get, I kind of blow their brains on the first week because I just sort of show them all this... This wonderful word. If you take nothing away from this evening, I give you the gift of this word. The word is syncretism. It's a lovely word. (laughs) And it means two disparate things blending into something new. And I tell them, you know, you've got Apollo. You've got um, Mithras. You've got the goddess Isis. You've got all these cults, all these figures that are about. And you've got Judaism. And you've got different sort of monotheistic thrusts happening. And then Christianity sort of builds its own unique selling points on the basis of everything that's around it yeah. but it only grows over time and it's it's yeah it's looking at these things as evolving you know history is never a line in the sand it's never a moment where one thing ends and another begins necessarily it's more often a kind of organic change you know religions are like that too it's fascinating i know but you sort of you know you sort of think well a having studied all those religions did you know was there anything that connected all of those 500 oh my god those 50 uh, goddesses everything connects all of them because the ultimate thrust in all of them are the basic human needs and desires yeah every single one of them resonated because every single one of them is tying into a a desire we have, a, a you know, a, a need we have. So many of them are connected with the earth, with animals, you know, with fertility, because that's basic existence, yeah. isn't it? And then war and destruction, you know, that's in there. And then love and empathy and kindness and knowledge. All these really basic core human beliefs, they're shared across the whole world and across time. Sure. And so that was kind of enlightening to, to see that. Yeah. And there's a need to try and... I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a primeval way of try, explaining the, where the universe has yeah. come from and explaining... Uh, you know, and it, it's very hard to imagine living in a, in a time where things are that confusing and that scary that you go, if I do this thing, then hopefully this will happen, we'll get food, we'll get sunshine, whatever. So you start to believe, you know, each action will lead to something and that's how... But a lot, I mean, a lot of the things are so imaginatively crazy. Yeah. Uh, you know, of... Well, combination I mean, of animals. Are we and... any more crazy today, Richard? I yes. Mean, I, I, no, I, <laughs> I, I have these moments, these glimmers where I sort of look at humanity today and I just sort of think, you know, we put value on a Bitcoin and we say it means something and we say it will have value in time to come. Yeah. When it is a concept that we've invented, just like cash, just like money. Yeah. Uh, like all these things, you know, we invent our own fantasies and then fulfill them and make them real. And a lot of these people, you know, that yeah, they're, they're the creating hybrid creatures, they're creating a fantastical world, but we're still creating all sorts of weird nonsense that we subscribe to. Of course, yeah. I mean, everything's <laughs> everything is sort of insane. But do, is there is there is it because of? I don't know because they, it's, they, they feel like it's sort of drug-induced, yeah. You know, drip nightmares. I like that, and, and is that where they came from? Yeah, no, I do like that. Um, yeah, lots of drugs yeah. were imbued in in some of these <laughs> environments. <laughs> I read some amazing uh, ritual accounts that just blew my brains, and 
yeah, put everything from the 60s to shame, really. <laughs> People were doing it a lot better a thousand years ago. Um, yeah, I, I have another thing, which is about manuscript illumination. So I get really excited when I look at, like, the psychedelic stuff you see in Hildegard, but also the, the Book of Kells. Any, any Kells fans up? <laughs> I'm looking to my Hildegard buddy down here. <laughs> um, Lynn's Spine Gospels. These weird, overlapping, exploding images that just, they're so colourful, they're so weird you don't know where to look and i always describe them a bit like a, you know those magic eye things mm-hmm. where a dolphin's supposed to jump out at you i remember being a kid in the 80s and everyone i knew could do them and i would sit there for like five six hours kind of crossing my <laughs> eyes i never saw a sodding dolphin but um they were <laughs> this is an interesting thing because they were using lead-based ink they were uh, licking the quill all oh, right <laughs> at the end and lead is a it builds up in the brain yeah and it causes sort of degenerative hallucinations so i genuinely think they were probably really quite high yeah yeah because <laughs> there's an argument there was like psychedelic drugs in the wheat in the, in the amongst the wheat fields of uh, you know around biblical times in biblical places mm. so you know they were getting that ground into their bread and and, and not realizing mm. makes sort of sense but also you know i don't it, it is sort of fascinating i just i, I think if I, you were going to base your whole life on believing something. I mean, that's where a book like this is sort of... And it's good for young people as well to show this is the vast range. Here's just 50 uh, gods that could have been the gods. Yeah. But, you know, why... You know, It's sort of interesting that people would take, well, I'm going to just take what I've been told. I'm not going to go back and see how that developed or what people said just before this the people got together and decided this was the bible or this was the bible so there's all these extra books there's all these extra gods and you can find it out through archaeology and through history and you can find out what yeah what i mean, was I going mean on. now when i think back to whether i should have been a stand-up or a historian yeah. <laughs> my, my um my major pleasure about being a historian is that it's you, there are so many half truths and actual outright lies in circulation that it takes a tiny bit of research, a tiny bit of scratching the surface of something to see it for what it is. And yet they're so widely distributed, they're so endemic, they're so built in that that they're believed and then they form the future. You know, mm-hmm. they inform how we see ourselves in the past and they inform how, where we're going in the future. And so, you know, this is one way of doing it. This is a way of saying, look at the world, look at the variety, look at the choices, look at the, you know, the, the culture, the geography, the, the climates, look how all these things interact when it comes to belief and, and culture. But there's also the way that I'm also taking in the other book, which is to myth bust. It's just to go right back and go, no, this has been written by us by, frankly, assholes from the past. <laughs> you know, that's my, that's my take on it. You know, we've had our past manipulated for us. Yeah. Um, and that, that's why it's kind of exciting to be doing this right now. Sure. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Well, I'm very jealous of you. I mean, I think I've made the right choice in not becoming an historian and becoming a staff. <laughs> I was going to ask. I think so. <laughs> but I mean, what I'm jealous about you, and especially in uh, uh, the TV work you've been doing, is you get to, uh, you know, you're, you're absolutely hands-on with all of these amazing artifacts and the, t- the fantastic TV shows. Uh, I was watching the Raiders of the Lost Past. Yes, don't Did, say Ark. Yeah, it feels like I feel like Mark Watson came up with that title for that show. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it's a it's a fantastic show. I saw I saw it a few few uh, months ago actually. But it's it stayed. But I'm very obsessed with Sutton Hoo. So for you oh. to for you to go and to the British Museum and be handling all of the stuff practically ripping the mask off and putting it on not quite oh no well, i did put the i did put, <laughs> put the, the false, um, one. false one yeah. on um i couldn't help it so so my yeah I'm, I'm not surprised i still can't believe i did it myself but um i could take this right back to when i was a uh, how old was i 21 yeah so i was doing my masters and i'd chosen to do this obscure kind of early medieval masters and i remember we were way up in york and our tutor came in one day and went, hey, we're going on a field trip to London. Yay. So we're going to go in the minibus. And there was about eight of us, all nut jobs who are into this early medieval stuff. And we thought, right, we're going to the British Museum. Fantastic. And they've got the curator. I mean, I'm not going to name names because this is quite kind of incriminating. Um, but I thought we were going to sit in this room and she, she was going to get out sort of some old rusty nails and maybe a, <laughs> a sort of crap old buckle or something. Anyway, we're sat down in the dark and there's just one spotlight in the middle and she walks in with the Sutton Hoo buckle and the Sutton Hoo shoulder clasp on a cushion. Okay. Right? And there's eight around a table. She comes in, she puts it up to the person next to me and it's going away from me around the circle and I'm starting to hyperventilate. (laughs) It's like the single most exciting thing. I don't know, for those of you who don't know these objects, so the Sutton Hoo buckle is about, uh, about a kilogram of solid gold with snakes and serpents and the shoulder clasps are possibly even more beautiful there's two of them and they're gold and garnet cloisonne um and the the garnet cells are like down to points of a millimeter and they're all 
presented with these back plates that sparkle. They are the. I I spoke to Garrett's Jewelers when I was making the program first time around, uh, who are the Royal Jewelers, and they said they would need a month. Running water, constant electricity, and two hundred thousand pounds worth of natural resources to make one right. now, and they made two of these in the year six twenty. Crazy! Yeah. So my students often say it was the aliens. But it's not the aliens. <laughs> it's just very skilled craftspeople. Um, but anyway, so this thing was coming around on this cushion, and we all had our gloves on, and each student was allowed to sort of just turn them on the cushion, just have a little look. I <laughs> think it got closer. And closer, and I'm thinking, I feel faint, I feel weird, I don't feel good right now. And then they passed the cushion to me, and I fainted. Oh, and I dropped the cushion, and it fell. And everyone, it was like, <laughs> I was, I went into kind of disaster mode within the British Museum, and they whizzed these things off. And surprisingly, they've never let people handle them since. <laughs> But then you've got to go back back and do it again. (laughs) That's not fair. You ruined it for everyone else. When you see these things and and handle them and and that close, do you see new things in them that you do? Every single time. So, you know, I often say to this to people, you know, when you find the thing that really gets you going, really turns you on like nothing else... Try and make it your job. <laughs> and that could be anything. And I'm not going down that route. But it could be, you know, I try and understand why people are fascinated by stamps. I try and understand why people love soil or birds or grass samples. I try and understand it because they're passionate about it for a reason. Well, my thing are these ancient objects. And I just can't get enough of them. I can't describe to you how, how awesome it feels to hold, like... A 40,000-year-old piece of of mirror in your hand and look into it and see your face reflected back when you know that someone 40,000 years ago looked in it and saw Mm -hmm. their face reflected back. You know, those sorts of things. I can't fake that. That is genuine, like, I'm losing it when I'm holding these things. And I think the BBC were just... They just noticed that I happened to be a complete nutshell <laughs> when it comes to old objects, and so ah, oh, stick a camera on her, you know, watch her do it in real time. Well, you're very, you know, you're very enthusiastic, <laughs> so you're very, which is a great attribute. I mean, I was going to, I was going to ask you about how, you know, how that that journey came to the TV, but you also, you've, you know, you have a look, you have a. We were talking to to Paul Chuckle about the moustache and the hair he has. Which I haven't is his got look. a moustache. You haven't got a moustache, but maybe if you put the moustache in, I you could be a success. Lift it, yeah, it could lift the <laughs> but whole you, look. But you have a look. Thank you. You know, then it's a very, it's a very interesting. And I wondered if it was, if if that was a decision you made. I'm going to go on TV. Oh or my with, god, or was this no. just you? Oh. No, uh, I get laughed at by actual goths because <laughs> I'm not an actual goth. I don't like goth music, sorry goths. But I have got, um, I've been, I've only worn black since I was sort of 13, 14 really. I went through a bit of a colourful stage where I was into hip hop and I started wearing kind of quite bright things. And then I quite quickly realised that black is, you know, black clothes just, they look great all the time. You never look bad. <laughs> she says wearing what is not, obviously not a black dress tonight. This was just for you. Richard thank you um but no I mean it was really funny because I never ever meant to do tv I was uh you know struggling academic I was pregnant and and I was working part-time and I knew I didn't have a full-time contract so I wasn't going to get any maternity pay and I remember running at like eight months pregnant could barely stand up running between lectures at Warwick University to kind of jump up in front of an audience and do an hour's lecture and then run off to the other side and things were really hard and um 
And I got back uh, from that gig and my son was born and it was his actual christening day. We had, and I've got a massive family, Polish, Irish, Scottish, Spanish. (laughs) And they were all at this party and the phone goes and I've got my little baby in my arm and I say, please hold the baby, run off, answer the phone. And I hear this voice saying, hello, this is the BBC. This is the BBC. (laughs) It was that. It was, oh, it's Doctor Who. It's, you know, um, everything I've ever watched. And it was just actually a sort of 20-year-old researcher (laughs) in an office somewhere. And he said, um, we're going to make this series on the Normans, but we've never done on television what came before that. So I typed into Google Anglo-Saxon arts... The person who came up first was out of the country, so I phoned you. Anyway, two and a half hours later, yeah. all the guests have gone. And I'm still on the phone to this guy going, and another thing, have you ever seen this? So it, it was all from a phone call. And then they said, well, you're obviously really passionate about it. We'll come up and meet you. You can tell us a bit more about it. So I thought, this is probably my only brush with celebrity. I'm going to make them buy me a cocktail at the Randolph Hotel. <laughs> he knows. Posh, posh cocktails. So I said, I'll meet you at the Randolph, and then I'll take you to the Ashmolean, and I'll show you some stuff. And they brought this camera along, and I was thinking, oh, it's like a dictaphone. They're just sort of listening, writing some notes, whatever. And I walked around, and I was doing all this, and I was looking at all the art, and I was poking in all the cabinets. And the camera kept sort of creeping up, creeping down. And at the end, the guy went, thank you so much. That was so useful. We'll, we'll get in touch if anything comes of it. But there's you know, 200 programs all in, in the running. It might, not never, it might not ever happen. Just before Christmas, I get this phone call. And they say, um, yeah, they've commissioned it. And not only that, they want you to present it. I, have, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. Um, and in my mind, I was like, brilliant, I can retire I'll have a Winnebago with a powder puff woman who'll come out and do my face. I'll just live on champagne. And then they told me the fee, (laughs) which was basically I had to pay for my own transport. So by the time I'd done that, I came home with nothing. (laughs) Um, But I wanted to make it because I was passionate. So I had to learn on the job. And I basically spent the last 12 years learning on the job. Um, And and I'm really lucky. And I love what I do. And, And I, you know... I'm really grateful Just for all think of it. if that first person on the Google search had been in the country. Well, she was my supervisor. <laughs> oh, really? And she was in Australia visiting her son, which I knew about. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I have, I, the guy who found me uh, was a guy called Ted, and I still like, text him regularly and go, thanks for finding me. <laughs> Thank you. It's all down to you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, but it's, but, you know, it is, it's very engaging, and it's, it's, it's uh, you know, I love that. That's Sutton Who One especially. Mm. The thing I liked best out of it, which I wasn't, aware of was the um that you know the been grave robbers obviously robbing a lot of the wasn't that awesome yeah. with the gin bottle at the bottom yeah. of the shaft because they kind of given up got drunk and gone home yeah <laughs> I love so they've that. Got, because the end of the the the, the barrow had been cut off by a plow yeah. they thought the middle was in a different place than it was so they dug down and were just a few feet away from inches, finding yeah. inches they were so close to the chamber and they'd have found all that gold all that treasure but they you're right they'd miscalculated because of the weathering yeah. and and it's so funny because we literally found these sort of 18th century gin bottle shards yeah. where they'd obviously just thought there's no point carrying on we're not going to find anything I love the fact they were mind? drinking drinking gin as they were trying to steal <laughs> trying to steal artifacts make it fun <laughs> <laughs> but it's a weird place if you visited yeah it's got an atmosphere, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I was up there on the mound, and um, and I was 
it doing an interview and this cat just appears out of nowhere this gray cat just sort of wanders up on the mound and i'm looking around and you know there's nothing around there at all and and he's there and he's rubbing himself around my legs and he will ref- he was refusing to leave the shot while we were filming he just kept stuck to me like glue <laughs> and then he vanished and i was and so i went back to the uh, the, the entrance and I said there was this cat up there and they said yeah he comes um, every kind of few weeks we see and we call him Radwald named mm-hmm. after potentially the king that was buried there and we don't know where he lives we don't know what he's got to do with the place but he appears and then he disappears and I was like and this cat is gorgeous I'm a big <laughs> cat lover okay you're a dog person aren't you I've got a dog and a cat oh, oh. I prefer the dog <laughs> I could do without the cat I can't oh come on that's yeah. it. Um, yeah, you, you are less sophisticated, clearly. I, I, my dog's great. <laughs> uh, so well, that's sort of like a ghost. Uh, I mean, can you tell anything? For, do you think it's Radwald? Do you think that is yeah. who's in there? Can you tell anything from history? Can you tell from the Sutton Who burial whether the King Radwald ever tried to suck his own cock? Can you tell that? Uh, no. No, so no, you still can't tell everything. enough, no. no okay. I mean, if we had some bones, that's... we might be able to see if he'd sort of done any major yeah. limbo exercises yeah. or no. Could do. Could have had a bit of sadly, not, back. unfortunately. Okay. Well, that's not, until history can do that. I have seen a, there's a really interesting grave <laughs> in Repton where the guy has been castrated. He's oh. a Viking warrior. Okay. And he's had it cut off. And you can see it's like they've gone in, like, there's like slash marks either okay. side. And then when they've gone to bury him, they're obviously feeling a bit sorry for him that he's emasculated. So they stuck a great big boar's tusk between his legs <laughs> to kind of compensate. Yeah. And so in that case, I think you can yeah. maybe say a bit more, but I don't know if he could suck his own name. Yeah. Sometimes they bury the, them up, don't they? They cut well, it off and are, stick it in their mouths. There are some weird ones with yeah. them in the mouth and then in yeah. like 69 positions and yeah. all sorts of strange graves like that. Yeah. I knew we'd get on some good stuff if we did that. Uh, <laughs> Hang around long enough. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've got another history-based emergency question that has flummoxed most people, but I think you'll be able to answer this one, and I don't know enough about it to be able to, to answer it. Would you rather be Stephen King or King Stephen? Oh, 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 oh. See? that's a cracking... Did you write that? I did, but I, no one knows enough about King Stephen. Enormous high five to you Thank for you. the most perfect question. Thank you. Um, it's not, good for you. Not, not King Stephen no? at all. Stephen King, I mean, for all reasons... Um, King Stephen, no way, Matilda every time. I mean, God, rubbish. But Stephen King, I'm a huge horror fan. I'm a massive horror junkie. So for all my kind of seeming academic credentials, (laughs) when I curl up in bed with my four cats, I stick on a bit of horror and a bit of Stephen King. And he's like my kind of idol, so. King Stephen, though, right, if it wasn't for the white ship... Going down, this is all I know. I read a book about the white ship. <laughs> they gave you themselves. It, it, it's, like this, it's like sliding door. I want to do a sliding doors <laughs> film. But it's, where he didn't go down on the white ship. Well, yeah. he, went, he had diarrhoea, didn't he? He didn't, yeah. go, he didn't go on the white ship. Well, you'd be amazed how much of history so, has been determined by people having diarrhoea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so much of it. <laughs> the white ship sank and everyone, all the nobles of a whole generation died, apart from King Stephen, who was having a ship. Yeah, yeah. And so it goes Possibly. on. But no, but then that was when shit saves you because the other thing is when people get like massive kind of dysentery and diarrhea <laughs> yeah. and then they die. I mean, Athelflaed, I've been writing about Athelflaed, the Lady of the Mercians, and she's one of my absolute superstars. Uh, she was Alfred the Great's daughter and all of it, all of her history was rewritten to kind of wipe her out of it. But she was possibly better than her dad at military strategy and at kind of economic strategy and politics. Um, and she, yeah, she was at the point 
of reunifying all of the kingdoms of England with Scotland and with Wales for the first time. This is in like the ninth century. And she got sick and died. And we don't know how she died. I mean, some say, could it be poison? Could she have just been topped off? But she was on the brink of it, on the eve of going to York and getting all of their fealty. Yeah. So how different history would be without whatever happened to her? I mean, it's true of any point in history, isn't it, though? Isn't it, Jess? If you change anything in history, it's all different, isn't it? <laughs> I, like, I like the depth of that as a, as a concept. That's my problem with the film Sliding Butterfly Doors. Butterfly effect. You just change anything mm. and everything changes. <laughs> My problem with Sliding Doors is not enough changes. Not enough change. changes. Not enough changes. <laughs> change the change. <laughs> change everything the initial changes. change. <laughs> if you decided not to come on this podcast, imagine how different your life would have been. I know. I'm, I'm sure it'd be transformed. It will be absolutely transformed. Yeah. You won't believe. I won't you, know myself. If you think that phone call from the BBC was good, <laughs> you wait for this. Um, yeah, waiting for that Winnebago and powder puff. <laughs> I don't think I saw this one in the in the Raiders of the Lost Pass. I think I saw a bit from the first series and a bit from the second series. Because uh-huh, uh-huh. I was watching on BBC iPlay and it just came in in whatever order it came in. But I don't remember. You, you went, the, the Mexico trip sounds oh, very exciting. My gosh, that was so exciting. The most yeah. exciting thing about the Mexico trip was the build-up to the Mexico trip. Because we were going into a particularly rough area. We were going down into the Gulf. So... Um, this was, oh my gosh, two, three years ago? Two years ago, probably. And with Trump and his wall, he'd kind of redrawn the, di- the, the whole dynamic around that area of Mexico. And what actually had happened was a lot of the trade, illegal and legal, had shunted, uh, sort of shunted down the Gulf. Right. And most people, kind of, we went into Mexico City. Mexico City is a stunning, gorgeous, beautiful, brilliant place. Very cosmopolitan, very kind of, everything's easy. And then we knew we were traveling for eight hours down the Gulf into quite unknown areas. So we had to have a police guard, uh, armed guard with us at all times. Curfew was 7pm, never be out on the roads after 7. There was all this stuff. Um, But the best bit was that we got sent this health and safety document. Usually when I do a thing like this, it's a couple of pages. Don't climb ladders, don't stick things on your head, you know, clever. Uh, But this one was 35 pages long. And, and my husband was a bit, already a bit nervous. He was like, oh, you're going away to Mexico for two weeks, leaving us. How's it going to be? And there was two pages dedicated to how to escape a crocodile attack. <laughs> and this is gold, honest, solid gold advice, right? How would you escape a crocodile attack? What would you do? Uh, if it was coming? And, it, and they lumber, don't they? They're like that. I'd throw my son in. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> That he's only little. Bit brutal. Yeah, but you know. That's genuinely your first. Well, if you don't have a son, a child's <laughs> handy. Nah, I take my kids with me. I take both kids. <laughs> Carry two emergency two, children. There's two crocodiles. A crocodile attack. Yeah. No children, no resources. Uh, what do you do? It's I, coming at you. Come on. I would lie down very still and pretend to be a stone. Mm. <laughs> so long to you, my friend. <laughs> you needed the advice of the BBC Health and Safety <laughs> booklet. Um, so, because they move in this zigzag way, a lot of people think the best thing to do is to run away from them in a zigzag manner. Right. But the reality is that I think it's 300 yards. Over the first 300 yards, a crocodile is much faster than a human running at full pelt. So the idea is if you see them start to gather up speed, you run at your literal sprint fastest in a straight line. And after 300 yards, it will stop and fall back. So if you can survive over that period <laughs> of outrunning it, yep. you're on to a winner. Okay. But that's not what I would have done. I probably would have taken the zigzag approach. I definitely wouldn't have zigzagged. No. Why, why go in the same direction well, as the crocodile? Just, go. They're just like... Uh, uh, 
like that, aren't they? So yeah. you'd sort but of. But they're zigzagging. Don't zigzagging. That's playing no into zigzag. the hands. Just super sprint. That's the yeah. answer. Well, Hippos, I just said so run away. Them. I was going to say run. A... <laughs> I'd, do. I'd run, run away. away really fast. Oh yeah, that's right. Well done. Well then, I would have given. I would have said well done. You'd have I'd got g- just rewards. I'd run away and then answer. go in a big tree. Can they go up trees? Throwing up, throwing children into this mix was not the solution. <laughs> uh, they, they no. You yeah, find a tree. Yeah, that would be all right. That would okay. be quite good. So did you get attacked by a crocodile? No, oh. unfortunately, no. I wanted to try out my new <laughs> sprint. Been training for weeks. Um, so what were you? What was in Mexico? Because so, it was it was all about sort of pre-war, oh, this archaeological discoveries yeah. that does it does fit in well with Indiana Jones. I have to. It say. was an amazing concept. Yeah, and I have to kind of give it to John T. Claypole from the BBC. Uh, it was his idea, but. Uh, actually, no, I think it... Well, anyway, I'll, I'll credit him for now. But I wanted to make this series, which was very different from every other archaeology TV show, which was that when you do... When you watch Treasures of the Egyptians, it's sort of boom, boom, and it takes you back and it tries to reconstruct the chronology. And But what's so interesting about archaeology is often the finds, how they were made, when they were made, who made them, what was their political, social environment when they made them. And we've discovered there were these three major discoveries all made on the eve of war in 1939. Um, Sutton, who's the famous one? Anyone see the dig? It was pretty good, I thought. It was okay. Yeah. Yeah. Many of my friends disagreed. I (laughs) I found it very sweet. With added love interest. <laughs> um, so there was Sutton Hoo. Uh, there was the discovery of the Lion Man, um, which is this incredible prehistoric mammoth tusk mm. that uh, dates back 20,000 years. And it's, um, it's incredible. It's the sort of birth of human imagination where it's half man, half lion. Uh, and then there was the Olmec heads in Mexico. And that was the funniest one. I suppose that was the most Indiana Jonesy one because it was a National Geographic um, exercise and they went out and, uh, and they really were going into the middle of nowhere with machetes just hacking the, the, the bushes apart mm. on local knowledge and discovering these heads that are, I mean, they're huge. Uh, they're absolutely enormous. The Olmec heads, there's solid boulders that have been carved with these, these really powerful facial expressions. And as a result of those discoveries, they discovered a whole new culture. So we knew about Mayans and Aztecs, but we didn't know about the Olmecs. And the Olmecs were putting up these heads at the same time as the pyramids were going up. Right. And then you think, bloody hell you know and also they were building pyramids but they were building pyramids out of um stone uh mud mud uh, bricks yeah so they would they this con this idea that two civilizations that had no contact with one another one in Af- uh, you know in, in egypt and one in mexico both had the idea of making these enormous pyramids out of different materials what's going on there aliens it is, isn't it? Aliens came down and it's said, we've travelled across the galaxy I just saw these in guys. metal ships, but we're going to make you build some pyramids out of stone and mud. There you go. For us. Yeah, I've just been over to Egypt. They've got it much <laughs> nicer over there. They've had their drive redone. <laughs> Did you discover, I listened to you on a yeah. podcast, you discovered a head that yeah. hadn't been discovered. Yeah, it's just so... That's crazy. <laughs> it was so fun. <laughs> so how did you so it was all so maverick filming that. I can't believe, I mean, it was just... It was a gang of kind of five of us knocking about in this beaten up van going around God knows where in Mexico. And um, and we'd heard that this drug cartel had just abandoned a um, ranch 
in the area where we knew that they'd been quarrying for the stone to make the heads. Right. And so nobody had really been there. <laughs> we, we turn up on this deserted street in the middle of the forest and um, there it is, the ranch, and it's a little bit burnt out. There's still, but it kind of looks like it could still have people in it. <laughs> so kind of we're walking up going, is there anyone in here? Um, and we went around the back of the ranch and it was, at, I mean, it was snakes and spiders and grass up above my head. And so we're working our way through. And, and this guide that was with us said, I think I've seen some actual Olmec sculptures around the back of the ranch. We go around and he just pulls this grass back like this. And there is a full long sculpture, Olmec sculpture, so 4,000 years old, of this woman. It's the most beautiful thing i've ever seen and it's just lying there in the dirt and then he says and i think if we go around here this is where they quarried the heads and what was there was a head but it hadn't been finished what had happened was a natural crack had come through the boulder so they'd given up on it but they'd already carved most of it and it's not recorded so there are like 14 recorded and this one in the middle of nowhere and i got to find it that's pretty cool it was so much fun. <laughs> I did get a bit excited and did a happy dance. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really exciting. Yeah. Lots of these, these sort of spontaneous things happen kind of when you're working, uh, especially on digs where they're live and they're sort of happening on, around you. It's, oh my God, it's just so... Yeah. I, I'm such a nerd, but this it's is a, my... It's a great series. I think it's all still on iPlayer, right? I, I was, I was I have, a couple no, of Nobody ago. tells me anything. I think it is. I don't know. But I don't know what I saw because I didn't see that one. <laughs> I thought I was watching the same series. It might have just gone to something, a different series. Okay, yeah, there was but a second series. There was a second yeah. series. But why did they show me Sutton Who and then... Uh, I, I, sometimes I watch things on, on iPlay and they show you the last episode first. If you're watching yeah. a drama, that's... That's I, brilliant, that's, isn't it? I, I thought, <laughs> oh, this, is a, this is a bold... Yeah. I've got to fill in a lot of gaps here. Oh, I've watched the last episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing that with my daughter recently because uh, I'm trying to educate her in kind of the best comedy that she has to see and... I mean, she's only 10, but she's seen everything. I mean, things that were really, you know, my parents wouldn't have let me see. But um, I was doing absolutely fabulous recently with her. We've been working our way through really carefully, episode by episode. And then more forward did that to me. It yeah. showed me the last episode. We're sat there watching it and she's going, why has Safi got a baby? Why is, <laughs> why is Patsy not there? What's going on? And so, yeah, it spoils it, doesn't it, yeah, when it, it does, comes to the wrongly. But I think, yeah, you need to give me some advice for her. I need to. Yeah, well, let her, her. let her watch everything. I, I, um, I, I listened to Derek and Clive when I was yeah. about twelve. So. My dad played it on vinyl to yeah. me when I was about that age. Yeah. And, uh, and well, I'd listened secretly. I don't think my mum and dad would have let me listen to that if they'd known what it was. But I listened to it secretly. See, yeah, it's and, weird when you got your dad sat there going, "Isn't it funny?" See <laughs> what see bombs coming at me. But I also think if you want, to, you know, if she's ten and wants to do it and is that obsessed with it, she probably is going to do it. Yeah, she writes so, scripts. She sits yeah. there at night and she's coming up with ideas and I mean unfortunately she's obsessed with James Acaster okay. dare I mention him. yeah you can't have everything he is pretty good is that bad taste you know, he's, no he's, he's, pretty, he's pretty good he's pretty good, he's pretty good taste <laughs> if it was Ed Gamble there'd be problems oh, no. there would be no, big no, troubles no, but no, we've had honest. conversations <laughs> uh, so I do ask the, I've asked this a lot but I, I'm very interested to know what your answer to this question is because also I think you could probably get away with doing this for real but I have, I have an emergency question. If, if all the museums and art galleries in the world got together and said, we love you, Nina. Me? Yeah. They love me. Yeah, we love you. We love your work. We're going to give you one thing oh. to keep from all of the museums and art galleries in the world. 
What one thing would you... I mean, I think you could probably steal something from the British Museum anyway. Well, You'd probably yeah, get away with yeah, a cuffling or two. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if, the, if you were able to be gifted something, which thing oh would you most like? God. And that's a hard question uh, for you, especially. any museum and art gallery in yeah. the world? Yeah. Edvard Munch's Madonna. Right. I don't, I don't know what... It, I'm going to have to Google it. I don't it. know what you're going to have to do with that. It's a beautiful... So you know Munch Scream. I do, that's what I know. Um, he painted a series of these Madonnas and uh, I had one next to my bed from when I was little and I don't know if it's the narcissist in me but she's quite a dark-haired, pale-skinned, <laughs> naked woman but she's got this incredible red halo and and she's lifting her head up to the sky as this sort of... She's both being adored and adoring herself and looking to the future and she's just always inspired me it's like everything i hoped i could achieve in that one image mm-hmm. but you've really surprised me and caught me off guard because my other answer would have been the lindisfarne gospels so that's pretty good can i stick one in each pocket yeah i mean the problem with you is you like art and and history and the shiny things i like the shiny yeah. things too i want the shiny things i asked paul chuckle backstage about, if it, about what his favorite museum was and he said he did like museums and he liked there was one in rotherham that had a stuffed lion in it so that's what he'd have gotten for. The stuffed line yeah. from Rotherham Museum. <laughs> the stuffed line from Rotherham, which I good. think was a waste. Well, that a, was a waste of the there's wish. There's a very nice stuffed bear in the Pitt Rivers that I wouldn't oh, yeah. mind. He's quite nice. But no, I mean, stuffed animals I love. But I I, I love them anyway. I get them anyway. I'm a yeah. bit of a fan of taxidermy. You can stuff your own animals. You yeah. don't need to get one of those from a museum. Yeah, yeah. Just kill a bear, stuff I it. have been saying that. Well, I mean, my husband has quite quickly whipped <laughs> them all off to the crematorium as soon as they die because he has a fear that I'm going to... Go into amateur taxidermy okay. and start so stuffing all the pets. It's everything about goths apart from the music. That is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, look, oh, look, I wanted, you were in rock bands. I was. How, what, so how did that go? Uh, ask my, my brothers from another mother. I mean, they're still my boys. We were, well, I've been in a couple of bands. Yeah. My first band I joined when I was 14, and we were called, <laughs> we were all girls. And in fact, I was the oldest <laughs> at 14. We were called Lolita. Okay. I thought that sort of... Uh, <laughs> I know, I know. Cancelled. Cancelled. Fully cancelled. <laughs> I mean, but that's, interestingly, a, that's a good... That's a, that's a very it was clever. a great name. Uh, interesting, the lead singer, Christy Morrison, is now... She was the first ever female editor of the NME. Okay. And she now is a music... Uh, reporter she works for the times but she yeah she went on to become like this huge kind of influence on the music scene whereas i didn't (laughs) (laughs) um but that was my first band i played bass in that band um very badly and then my main band were called role models and um i was the singer and my worst ever experience was when we were kind of getting a bit big and i was doing um (laughs) uh work experience in a solicitor's office and um, and I'd sort of mentioned to the to the group of solicitors that I was doing a gig that night in Reading and you know where it was and what time it was and and we were quite sort of punk rock we were quite heavy and I went on stage in a completely see through catsuit <laughs> which was a bold move by any standards uh, but it was the nineties. And I went out and I was like, I'm going to rock this, I'm going to own this. And I looked down and the entire front row is every solicitor <laughs> from the firm staring at me going... And I had to go to work the next day. It was all very uncomfortable. But, but I loved it. And I think, um, yeah, being in a band, it was, I wasn't musically talented particularly. I just wanted the experience. 
And yeah. I wanted that sense of being in a family, doing something creative together, which is kind of what I get making documentaries. I yeah. love being a little gang out there making something. Um, well, that's the, how the, I felt you're, you're definitely a performer. You know, I think you could have been a stand-up. I can't oh. see why you wouldn't have been a stand-up. Because, you know, because there's the, it's the enthusiasm and conf- confidence is 90% of being a comedian. Well, I think it's also wordplay. I'm so fascinated by what you guys do, how you write, how you think 10 steps ahead about where the, the punchline's coming and where the, the payoff is. And I just love that kind of linguistic play. I think, I think stand-up is the hardest thing. It and is, I have it is. so much it respect. And much, I know, genuinely. It's much it harder is. than running away from a crocodile. Much harder. Running in a straight away. line. Much harder than anyway. No, I, I, on a on a genuine level, I really do think it's. Um, I'm watching my daughter kind of try and get the building blocks off it. Yeah. And I'm really proud. I'm really proud that that's what she wants to do with her skills, with her confidence, with her energy. Um, I just happen to channel it in a slightly different way. <laughs> but what do, if you hadn't had that call from the BBC and the, yeah. what do you, do you think you would have just been completely like in academia? Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, I really do. I I kind of had already accepted that I probably wasn't i chose so we got a con when i was in my band for the first two years at oxford i was traveling up and down into london doing gigs in camden going back trying you know getting back at four in the morning getting up to go to a lecture trying to submit an essay and it was really hard keeping the two worlds together Mm. and then um then we got offered a contract and it was with a tour and i remember saying you know i can't go i'm doing my degree i'm you know i'm about to finish my degree I've got to stick with it. And they said, well, you'll have to choose. You choose the band or you choose your Oxford degree. And I chose my Oxford degree. And they were livid and furious, rightly so. And they didn't speak to me for years. We're now back being best buds again. But I chose to be that nerd. (laughs) I invested in my nerdness. Um, And so, yeah, I would have just carried on loving kind of the weird side of being an (laughs) academic and discovering things. But I think I'm too much of a... Um, I love people and I love being around people and I think academia can be incredibly closed and sort of insular so thank god I got a chance to yeah. do different things you're yeah. not, I mean you know I, I, I wouldn't like to pigeonhole all academics in a certain way but you're not a typical academic not standard uh, no. which is a good thing <laughs> but it's also good to be a typical academic as well <laughs> yeah no insult meant to typical but, academics you know. <laughs> Glad they're not Dusty. on TV. Dusty, uh, <laughs> so what's coming? The books are coming. The book one uh, book's out. The Goddess book is out. Yeah. The uh, the uh, feminine. It sounds it's like Latin a, for woman. It sounds Richard. like you a. It sounds this. like a you know a sanitary, a sanitary product. <laughs> Femina, uh, and it's out on in July. Right, because yeah. it said right Mar- my said March one time, but it's yeah. No, I know it changed. went back because of back. kind of making it making all work out with the two. Nosy Crow uh, uh, are the publishers of uh, The Goddess Book, who also publish uh, Catherine Wilkins' books, which you should also buy. That's, that's my wife. Oh, we're fellows, are we? Oh. Yeah, they're excellent publishers. They're I love Nosy Crow. They are extremely good. Oh, we have to do book exchange. You should. Yes, we, should. we will. We will. Uh, and uh, you've been in Egypt, so I guess that, yes. what's, what's, what's that show? Is that oh, coming up soon? Well, or can you talk about it? This is a big reveal, really. Okay. Um, okay, I will say. Okay. But I shouldn't. Okay. Um, <laughs> Good. Uh, we've got three weeks, haven't we? Yeah, well, apart from the live feed going out directly uh, into... Uh, yeah, all right, I'll say it. Okay. So, um, yeah, I can say it. I finished but These it people won't. Yeah, no, there are fine. people here it's as fine. well. I finished, they're, like, literally on Friday, yeah. so I can say... So we have... I can say it. We have filmed 
the BBC's centenary special for the discovery by Howard Carter of Tutankhamun. Amazing. And had the most extraordinary experience. And yeah, I've been saying about all these things that have happened to me. Nothing compares to what I've just been through in the last couple of weeks. I have cried a lot. I have um, pinched myself numerous times till I'm black and blue that I'm having this experience. Uh, and I can't tell you what happens at the end, but there is a huge reveal. And they yeah, find, they find been... Tutankhamun's tomb. That's what happens. They do. They find it in the end. A hundred years ago. That's the problem with history. You can it's just look it up in a book. No, no. There's something really cool that happens on <laughs> okay. camera that we weren't expecting, and it's like, ah. But um, the mummy yeah. comes to life and kills kills <laughs> ten people. Pretty much, it's close. <laughs> okay, I'm very excited. Well, that. So, did you get to touch all that stuff as well? Did you get to handle all that? Sorry, my friend. Yeah. Did you get to handle Tutankhamun's pencil case? That's my favourite. Uh, bit. Yeah. No. I, yeah. That not one. No. No. I had. I got to. No, I'm not going to say. Okay. But yeah, lots of exciting things happened. Um, but more than anything, it was. You know, it was again, it was we've been working on this series for like a few years now, and and it is a different way of doing these stories because you're telling the story of the ancient Egyptians, you're telling the story of Howard Carter 100 years ago, and then you're telling the story of Egypt now and Egyptian archaeology now, and all the three threads sort of weave together. And and it was just for me, it just felt like a really high point in my life that I can tell these stories and and you know, give voices to you know people who've haven't had them before um so yeah it was nice good and i got to go to egypt in winter yeah although i did get a chest infection from cairo okay curse of tutankhamun maybe (laughs) honestly the team said that to me they're like you're ill you're gonna you've got about three days yeah (laughs) it's just it's getting it's getting a bit faint now the curse i'll be giving a slight cold what about covid no no i know pcr test no (laughs) it's the curse it says negative positive Curse of Tutankhamun. <laughs> well, I can't wait. If the shows are on the iPlayer, look them up. They'll probably find them on YouTube or something. If not, and do buy the fantastic books as well. Please give a massive round of applause to Dr. Nina Ramirez. Thank you very much. We'll be back next week with Charlie Mormon, Terry Christian. Come and see it. It's going to be good. Terry Christian. Yeah. Oh. You have been listening to Rahula Stepper with me, Richard Herring, and my guest, Yanina Ramirez. Thank you very much to Scant Regard. They're playing this music you're listening to right now. I'm indebted to my producer, Ben Walker. I'm also indebted to Chris Evans. Not that one. Come on, it wouldn't be that one, would it? Thank you to everyone at the Leicester Square Theatre for fantastically hosting me once again. Uh, thank you to all the crew and the team. Even George, the incompetent sound man. Let's thank everybody. Uh, also, I am indebted to the Kickstarter campaign backers, including Mr. George Goodfellow, Gray Egerton, James Shade, Schroeder Luke, uh, Steve Inet, Eric Fell, Dan Welton, Laura and Shane, Jai, Chris Kozak, Alan Buckman, Gideon Seymour, Carolyn Cooper, Nick Mankatolo, yeah, it could be, Mike Pass, Tim Nunny, Shirley Graham, Listener 997, David Williams, that's David Williams' real name, I hope it was him, Chris Phillips, Michael Hudson, Hannah James, Kevin Simmons, Rick Harrison, no name, Robbie Hand, <laughs> Andrew Smalley, Jules Willis, Sean, Rod Begbie, Stuart Reed, Neil Curry, New Zealand's team of 5 million, Jason Cook, Marius Espenes. I feel that Chris Evans puts a couple of joke ones in there. Just to get me. Come on, Marius Espenas isn't real. 
This is a Sky Potato Fuzz and GoFuzzTheStripe.com production. Head to richardherring.com slash gigs to see who else is going to be on this wonderful season at the Leicester Square Theatre. Tickets available for almost all gigs. Please come down and see it. Or you can watch the live stream, gfsboxoffice.com. And you can see us live streamed or watch the videos anytime you like after the show has been recorded. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'm going now. Bye. Don't drink the milk. Don't drink the milk. Don't drink the milk. No, this isn't a podcast about milk. If you like historical intrigue, a bit of culture and a sprinkling of controversy, this one's for you. I'm Rachel Stewart and I'm travelling around Europe, following the hidden history of everyday things as they're exported through time and around the world, by force, by chance or by choice. No need to pack your bags. Just subscribe to Don't Drink the Milk wherever you listen to podcasts. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Thank you very much for listening to my podcasts. Listen to some more. Tell your friends about these podcasts. We're in a very competitive market and it would be lovely to keep those downloads coming in. The more downloads we get, the more money we make and the more podcasts we can make for you. It's a beautiful symbiotic relationship. Come and see me on tour at richardherring.com. But otherwise, just, you know, go outside. Enjoy the spring air. It's beautiful out there. I love you all. Goodbye.